0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. You're listening to the podcast, ICU Rounds. This week there's been a significant amount of uh, discussion regarding the uh, topic of uh, polyheme. Um, Polyheme is a uh, synthetic blood substitute that has been um, around for several years, but has been uh, in the testing phase uh, and has been the source of significant controversy uh, both during the production of the test and and certainly most recently uh, this week in a... uh, Uh, article and an editorial that appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association when we think about the necessity for artificial blood it becomes rather simple to see why uh, folks would have an interest in the development of artificial blood or artificial hemoglobin um, particularly in regards to uh, military application uh, and pre-hospital application Uh, The uh, use of blood in a pre-hospital or military setting becomes logistically difficult for several reasons. First of all, uh, blood has a relatively uh, short uh, shelf life. Uh, There are issues uh, regarding refrigeration of, of, uh, um, of packed red blood cells. Uh, there are issues regarding uh, cross-matching, uh, viral transmission, and so forth. Therefore, a um, holy grail uh, that has been searched after is the production of a oxygen-carrying uh, resuscitative fluid uh, that could be used in replace of blood that would be readily available, have a longer shelf life, uh, and not perhaps require uh, refrigeration. Such a product would be uh, used very easily in a military setting in a downrange situation. Uh, under austere conditions such as pre-hospital environments uh, or even frontier medical environments now the difference is that when we look at the polyheme product polyheme is a polymerized form of hemoglobin Uh, those of you who understand what uh, how hemoglobin is and hemoglobin works hemoglobin is known as a tetramer uh, molecule it means there's four subunits of hemoglobin molecule and they are bound such that uh, with those four binding sites when you bind the first binding site the affinity for the second binding site increases with oxygen and therefore when you bind the second binding site the affinity for the third binding site also increases even more and this creates uh, a um, very characteristic binding curve uh, than anybody who has looked at the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve um, knows it's a, uh, an S-shaped curve because of this positive uh, binding affinity that we see when we bind each individual subunit now what polyheme or polymerized hemoglobin is is rather than having this complex four unit molecule that interacts with uh, uh, uh each other the polymerized hemoglobin is just that it's polymerized meaning that the hemoglobin molecule is drawn out in a chain and the binding kinetics, or the properties of the binding, are linear, m- meaning that you're not going to see that the binding of one site increases the affinity for subsequent binding sites. So this physiologically is very different. The other thing is when we look at oxygen binding it to native hemoglobin fact red blood cells, a red blood cell is a rather complex cell. It is a anuclear cell that has a very characteristic biconcave disk. When we look at the physiology of banked blood, there is a tremendously growing body of literature that shows that banked blood does not respond physiologically the same as native blood. And therefore, when you're transfusing patients, thinking that you're increasing the oxygen carrying capacity by giving banked blood, you're not actually physiologically uh, meeting that endpoint due to changes uh, in. Uh, molecules such as 23 DPG which changes um the um, affinity of the hemoglobin molecule um, to oxygen as well as changes in the shape of the uh, red blood cell from a, a biconcave disc to something as an iconocyte so the differences between native blood and bank blood are different and certainly the differences between bank blood and polymerized hemoglobin are different the article that really has initiated a lot of this firestorm is a meta analysis by uh, Madison and colleagues, Charles Madison, Stephen Kern, Peter Lurie, uh, Stephen M. Banks, and Sidney uh, M. Wolfe, and appeared in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, and for reference, uh, this appeared uh, April 28, uh, 2008. Now, this is a meta-analysis, and meta- meta-analysis have their inherent problems. Uh, and For those of you who don't know what meta-analysis is, basically you look at, you try to do statistical uh, manipulations on a series of articles uh, and, and try to make statistical conclusions from that, and that is, has its own inherent problems. And since I've referenced the article, I'm going to take liberty to uh, uh, read from uh, different areas of the article, but I certainly would encourage you to uh, go pull the article yourself. The authors write that the development of a blood substitute, an infusible liquid that eliminates the need for refrigeration and cross-matching and has a long uh, shelf life and reduces the risk of iatrogenic infection, would provide a potentially life-saving option for surgical patients and trauma patients with hemorrhagic shock, especially in rural areas and in military settings. To date, a large proportion of blood substitutes in development have been hemoglobin-based products. Yet, randomized controlled trials completed as early as 1996 have raised questions about the safety of these products and have failed to demonstrate clinical benefit. Nonetheless, at least one of these products is approved for use outside the United States and new clinical trials are being conducted or planned worldwide. The authors go on that all these different types of... um, um, Blood substitutes share the same mechanism of action and apparently the same mechanism of toxicity. As we've already mentioned, the hemoglobin molecules uh, are not contained by red blood cell membranes. And when released into the vasculature, these uh, uh, hemoglobin molecules not bound by a cell membrane rapidly scavenger the molecule nitric oxide now this uh, scavenging or decreasing of nitric oxide can result in systemic vasoconstriction, decreased blood flow increased release of pro-inflammatory mediators and potent vasoconstrictors and a loss of platelet inactivation. This can create a condition that may lead to vascular thrombosis of the heart or other organs. This mechanism has recently shown preclinical models to be responsible for injury during hemolytic states in which hemoglobin is also released into the circulation. The authors stated that the purpose of their meta-analysis was to, quote, review the association between the use of these hemoglobin-based blood substitutes and the risk of myocardial infarction and death in trials in different clinical settings. They also wanted to examine the regulatory processes that permitted repeated trials with these agents despite persistent safety concerns. So looking at their hypothesis or their objectives, there are two. Does the administration of hemoglobin-based blood substitutes increase the risk of myocardial infarction and death? That's the first one. Their second objective is a little bit surprising for a scientific paper. And one, perhaps the cynic would argue, perhaps a little bit um, a political objective. I, I'm not sure how to characterize it, but it's, it's unusual. And that is to examine the regulatory process that permitted repeated trials of these agents despite persistent safety concerns. That doesn't sound like... Something where one's generated a null hypothesis and, and went out and uh, maintained an uh, open um, mind at, at the initiation of the, the study or generation of the null hypothesis. What the authors were able to conclude um, that from the randomized controlled trials of, of the hemoglobin based blood substitutes, when evaluating in elective surgery trauma and stroke patients, there was an overall 30% statistically significant increase in the mortality risk there was also a statistically significant 2.7-fold increase in myocardial risk associated with the use of the blood substitutes. When they actually did subgroup analysis, these risks were consistent regardless of the age of the patients, the type of blood product used. And this is where the authors in the paper um, uh, begin to um, critique the policies of the Food and Drug Administration. And I'm not saying that I don't disagree with their conclusions, or, or that I do agree with their conclusions, but it's just it's kind of strange because they begin to editorialize uh, in, in what has been a, a very heavily statistically modeled uh, meta-analysis. The authors go going to re- write that the sponsors are required by law to report the results of the Food and Drug Administration in a timely fashion after studies are completed even if they do not publish their findings. However, the data uh, reported by the sponsors of the FDA are not made public by the FDA unless the product is approved or an advisory committee is convened to discuss the product. And I would opine that that needs to be revised. If somebody publishes a negative study on a particular drug and it's uh, submitted to the FDA, that should be made available to the public or in the scientific community. Based on the data that's evaluated in this meta-analysis on the blood substitutes, significant risks would have been identified back in the year 2000. And the authors uh, opine that had the FDA placed a moratorium on additional trials at that interval point in 2000, uh, product related uh, deaths and MIs uh, related to ongoing performance of the trials would likely have not ever been. Uh, would have likely been prevented, and the authors of this paper go on to illustrate. They say, for instance, at least seven of the nine hemesis trials were completed by 1998. However, because of times, the publication of three to five years, these trials were published between 1999 and year 2003. They go on. The data in a large uh, proportion of patients uh, in the um, hemopure trials, all of which were completed by 2000, have not been published, and these data only became public publicly known, after Public Citizen sued the Food and Drug Administration to make open to the public a December 2006 FDA Advisory Committee meeting at which the data were presented. The data from the first large trial of Polyhene were only made public when the company responding to a critical article in the lay press issued a release on December 19, 2006, six years after the trial was completed. The data from at least two additional trials still have not been published in the medical literature. Only qualitative descriptions are available from press releases. Both studies were terminated early for safety reasons. In a study involving vascular surgery patients conducted in the late 1990s, OPTRA was associated with gastrointestinal adverse effects, hypertension, and increases in uh, total peripheral resistance. In 2003, Hemolink was reported to produce uh, an increase in myocardial infarctions, as been described in two previously published trials in cardiac surgery patients for the same product. And the authors then go on to consider that it's still possible there are still more clinical trials that have not yet been made public. And here's where I think it gets even more interesting or or controversial, is that in the most recent polyheme trial, um, Uh, The FDA gave approval for this trial in trauma patients, even though the FDA presumably had unpublished data showing a significant increase in MIs in the prior polyhene trial in the vascular surgery patients. The FDA had results from trials involving other hemoglobin-based blood substitute products also showing harm, and the FDA had also placed a clinical uh, hold on hemopure trauma trial because of serious adverse events in previously mostly unpublished trials uh, of um, hemoglobin-based blood substitutes. The authors conclude from their meta-analysis that no hemoglobin-based blood substitute study reported a statistically significant meaningful long-term beneficial outcome they go on to acknowledge that it is a meta-analysis and as in with all meta-analysis there are some limitations and they go through what some of those statistical limitations are using things like pulled data and so forth they then go back to some of the more editorializing elements of, of their paper and they say that the results of all trials of experimental agents conducted to human beings from phase one to phase four should be fully and expeditiously disclosed to the scientific and medical communities when quote secret science is allowed Scientists are unable to build on the successes or failures of other researchers testing similar products and patients can be repeatedly exposed to risks unnecessarily. It's difficult to argue with this logic put forth by the authors of this paper. They go on to say that one straightforward solution to these problems would be for Congress to reverse the FDA policy of treating confidential all corporate materials submitted during the product development process, including the investigational new drug application. The agency will not even confirm the existence of an investigational new drug, new drug or biological license application until and only if the product is approved unless it's one of the minority of products that receive an advisory committee hearing or the application is formally abandoned, which is a rare occurrence. And the authors then continue um, their paper of uh, talking about uh, that these disclosures have been argued about um, essentially the last 30, 30 years and there should be some, uh, if uh, not disclosure by the Food and Drug Administration, perhaps the Freedom of Information uh, disclosures. since these are... Uh, Um, applications filled uh, with the federal government. So the authors then um, conclude the patient uh, with what would be some of the potential uh, government reforms with the idea of uh, having uh, studies being conducted to show potentially uh, negative outcomes uh, and potential harm to patients and, and basically making it difficult for people to access those records and this has been uh, more hotly debated uh, not only in the scientific literature but also in the lay literature uh, lately the important points to keep in mind with this uh, paper this paper is um, uh, been widely publicized in the uh, lay uh, press and is rapidly uh, circulating on blogs and the internet it is a uh, meta-analysis of paper, uh, studies that have been done um, Uh, previously. I think the authors of this bring up some very good points, um, and and we've seen these papers in the past, that there is an associated risk with myocardial infarctions. They uh, discuss in the early parts of the paper what are some of those potential mechanisms as to why these hemoglobin-based uh, blood substitutes or polymerized hemoglobin products may result in increased complications such as myocardial infarction. This paper does nothing to elucidate what those actual mechanisms are. This paper is not designed by this, and the authors Are very forthright in that, saying that they, you know, this is their supposition as to how polymerized hemoglobin molecules may result uh, in myocardial infarction because of it being a nitric oxide scavenger, but that's not what this paper sets out to do. This paper is is somewhat odd in that a large portion of it is dedicated to editorializing the uh, problems that we have in our current. Um, Food and Drug Administration as far as there not being a forced disclosure of, dr- of studies that, that have negative uh, outcomes. It's unusual to see that in, in a paper like this. I don't know that I disagree with them doing it. It's certainly very um, honest and I don't disagree with um, the um, comments made by the uh, authors regarding uh, a need for full disclosure. In the same edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association, is a um, editorial by Ferguson and McIntyre uh, entitled "The Future of Clinical Trials Evaluating Blood Substitutes." They write that the general consistency of harm across all hemoglobin-based um, uh, oxygen carriers or uh, um, blood substitutes, regardless of technology, whether it's cross-linked polymerized or conjugated hemoglobin, an important subgroup suggests that the findings are robust. Although the adverse outcomes assessed were not significant with any of the trials except one, individual trials were generally not powered to detect important differences in harm. They go on to say that the value of meta-analysis is to synthesize evidence across trials, regardless of size, to better understand benefits and harms. Identifying all eligible trials can be a limitation of systematic reviews, but Nanda and colleagues in the first paper went to great lengths to identify all potential trials. Even though non-peer-reviewed studies were included, the overall findings were not affected by the unpublished studies. For blood substitutes um, to be administered in the hospital setting, the risks associated with the blood substitutes need to be at least comparable with the risks associated with red blood cell transfusions. For patients who require out-of-hospital treatment or who are in a remote location where blood cells are not immediately available, the risk of a hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier or a blood substitute need to be compared against the risks of resuscitation fluids used in those settings. Then they go on to talk about the development of uh, getting the clinical trials going uh, in humans to uh, bring a drug forward, and they say to substantiate the need for a clinical trial, systematic reviews need to be conducted and reported. Examination of the introduction sections of the 13 published studies of blood substitutes identified by Nannason and colleagues reveal that no studies reported whether a systematic review of either animal or clinical evidence was conducted. Although some studies did cite animal or clinical studies, it is essential to guard against selective reporting of only studies that support the trial's rationale. In terms of presenting potential harms, only three trials, included in the analysis by Anderson and colleagues mentioned a potential increase in mortality with blood substitute products, and none of the articles specifically mentioned the issue of myocardial infarction in their introduction sections. The importance of synthesizing animal evidence is best demonstrated by the decision of U.S. Army scientists to abandon its cross-linked hemoglobin product in 1993 because animal studies consistently showed that the deleterious vasoconstrictive vasoconstricted properties precluded any clinical benefit. Yet trials of the alpha-alpha hemoglobin in stroke and trauma patients continue to be de- uh, designed and conducted by the manufacturer of these products and these trials in humans confirmed the very risk identified by the U.S. Army animal studies conducted years later. Aside from the preclinical evidence, a systematic review and synthesis of accumulating clinical trials should have detected early signs of deleterious effects as demonstrated by Natteson and colleagues. Investigators have a responsibility to collect and monitor clinically important harms such as those related to vasoconstriction and nephrotoxicity in all study patients regardless of trial sample size and primary objectives of the trial. It is unclear whether this duty is fulfilled, but Madison and colleagues found that 38% of trials did not report the number of myocardial infarctions. In the 13 studies in the report by Nadesen and colleagues that were published as full journal articles, only one reported an a priori definition of myocardial infarction or other potentially important adverse effects related to the blood products, the blood substitutes, such as renal failure or stroke. The authors of this editorial go on that, based on the findings of Nadesen and colleagues and the consistency of these results with preclinical evidence of potential toxicity, Further phase 3 trials of blood substitutes should not be conducted. They go on, as Stahl suggests, the unpredictable clinical response to hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier therapy seen in animals and humans, quote, highlights the somewhat embarrassing fact that we do not fully understand oxygen delivery and utilization, end quote. I think it's a fascinating comment made in that editorial. They end the um, editorial with the following paragraph. Given the safety of the blood supply, availability of blood products, and technologies to minimize transfusion, it does not seem prudent to study the use of hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers in elective surgical populations. Finally, although it is difficult to argue that transfusion avoidance supersedes mortality and myocardial infarction as an endpoint, The onus is on investigators and sponsors to demonstrate that hemoglobin-based auction carriers are as at least effective in reducing mortality or serious morbidity as the current standards of care. One thing that is certainly uh, evident is that the approach that we have regarding these kind of trials is going to be uh, looked at uh, with great scrutiny. The other issues are going to be the community consent that was performed on emergency uh, trauma patients. Um, Those of you who may not be aware of the polyheme study is um, uh, there were several centers around the country, and, and the trial was reviewed by uh, various uh, you know, institutional review boards of some very um, uh, quality uh, medical schools. Uh, and when a uh, community was um, consented, what happened was, and I might have some of these details not entirely um, not accurate, but uh, a um, opportunity for the public to um, uh, um present their um, objections uh, were allowed. Um, Ads were taken out in newspapers and various media outlets saying that we are proposing a study by X, Y, and Z, and this is the intent of the study, uh, and these are the perceived risks and benefits, and so forth. And if you wanted to opt out of the study, you had to have a bracelet, and you had to wear the bracelet, because this was being done with emergency consent to the community uh, for trauma patients. And therefore, if you were in a motor vehicle crash, You were hemorrhaging on the street, you had a ruptured spleen, uh, you had an open femur fracture, and blood was flowing on the highway. Um, If you did not have one of these bracelets, you were basically consenting the community, and therefore you were enrolled uh, in uh, the polyheme trial. And I'm certain that this is going to be looked at with great scrutiny, and you'll probably uh, see significant changes uh, in how that kind of research is done in the future. Uh, That concludes this uh, episode of uh, ICU Rounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy. I'm an Associate Professor of Surgery at uh, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, and I am the Director of the Burn Unit there. Many of you have been sending me an email. I do appreciate that, uh, both your thoughts on the podcast and your feedback. It certainly is very helpful, and uh, uh, those of you who are making good use of the program, uh, I am um, uh, very grateful for that. Thousands of people listen to this podcast each week uh, from all over the world uh, from uh, ICU physicians, uh, uh, trauma surgeons, residents, medical students, nurses, paramedics, and uh, it is fair to say that uh, the feedback we get is from all over the world. I've also gotten some email asking me if I'm aware of any other um, uh, medical podcasts uh, such as this one. Um, I'm happy to tell you that we are uh, currently in the... uh, pre-launch phase of a uh, series of podcasts um, that will be uh, launched on another website, uh, but will have uh, various uh, topics uh, of medical interest. And ICE rounds will be appearing there uh, in a little bit of a different form than you have here. And uh, as we get ready to uh, launch that, I'll provide you with more details. Thank you for downloading. Bye-bye.